Good morning. Are you happy that you're saved today? Happy and blessed, as we just sang. The reality is, no matter what you go through life, no matter what is falling apart, no matter what seems to be going wrong, there's one thing that remains true. You're saved. And he's going to take us home one day to a place where there's no more pain, no more tears, no more hunger, no more frustration. That is the reality of our gospel, that we can rest in our salvation. But how often do we need to be reminded of that truth, of how simple our faith is, yet we make it so complicated? And this is the point of the book of Galatians as we continue in our series in this text. We've now come to chapter 5, and you can turn your Bibles there to meet me in that place. Is it possible to summarize the book of Galatians in one verse? The answer is yes. We can summarize the entire book in one verse, and it is found in the first verse of this chapter. We're going to read a few verses here, but this is what's happening. Paul now is about to transition in his letter. Something is about to shift in his focus, and it's going to be what true spirituality is and how we can receive the power to walk in it. So if you've been with us since the beginning, it's been very doctrinal. It's been very heavy on theology, which is necessary. But now we're about to get practical, and Paul's preparing his people to do just that. But before diving into the practicality of our faith, Paul seems to want to make one more final heart-stirring plea for the Galatians to embrace the gospel of grace. I mean, it seems like he just can't get enough by repeating himself this way, urging his hearers, urging his listeners to make sure that they found themselves secure in this glorious truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's read a few verses and then take it verse by verse. Verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again of every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Some serious words here. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith through working love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray together. Lord, we find ourselves facing the same truth in a different way, but we don't want to be hardened to it. We don't want to be numb to it. We ask that you would grant us a softening of the heart that, Lord, if we have come in here not happy, not sensing that we are blessed by this gospel, surely that would be the result of this meeting, that we would leave here overjoyed with the reality of what you've done for us. Lord, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, a mind that's free from distraction, from disobedience, from dishonor. Bring us into the center of your will today, we ask. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 1 encapsulates, summarizes this entire book in one verse. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. When Jesus Christ died for us, it's so that we can be free people. And that freedom is from the freedom of being obligated to do anything to be free, so to speak. And what this gospel does, what this enables us to do is relate to God with a lightness and an easiness throughout all our days. There is this sense of burden that's lifted off. Some people have even described their salvation experience that way, that the moment they've confessed and repented and turned to Christ in faith, what do they say? How many times have we heard it? It feels like a burden was lifted off of my shoulders. Because that's what this gospel does. It sets us free. It sets us free from the need to think that we need to do anything, say anything, repeat anything to remain right with God. Everything that Christ has done was enough, and this should surely bring us to a place of freedom. Any pressure to obey, whether from ourselves or from anybody outside, like they're experiencing, any intimidation, any self-condemnation to say, I got to do this so that I can attain or remain in the right place with God is totally outside of the will of God. It is not the gospel that this Bible declares and that Jesus wanted to share with us. And so we have to choose. We have to choose to receive that freedom. We have to choose to accept it. And if we choose to mingle that freedom, that truth of that freedom with anything else, or to pervert it, or to make our own version of it, or to add to it, what we do is we ultimately bring ourselves to a place that Jesus Christ is no longer any advantage to us. The only way that Jesus Christ will be any advantage to any person is when they realize Jesus Christ is enough. The moment we begin to try to manipulate that or change that or alter that, we have officially shut the door for Christ to be able to do anything for us and to be of any benefit to us. The only way that Christ can be of benefit to us is when we receive what he has done for us freely and in faith. Anything outside of that shuts the door in our relationship with him. What advantage does Christ have to us? That everything he's done is enough. That all the requirements for us to be glorying in his presence forever has been satisfied by his work. If you relate to Jesus Christ in any way other than that, you do not have Jesus Christ. Very simple. So this is what we have to do. If we embrace that truth, if we all say amen to that truth, we say yes to that truth, we are standing in that truth, this is the next step in the first verse. He says, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, in that. Which tells you and I something, that to walk in that freedom, to experience that lightness, to be able to sing and to be able to rejoice, to be able to wake up with a smile on our hearts, will be challenged. It will be disturbed. It, it will come to a place in which it will try to be shaken so that we can come outside of that freedom. Whether from ourselves and our flesh, whether from outsiders like the Judaizers, Judaizers or from the devil himself. You and I must be able to resist and fight, not to attain, but to walk in the purchased reality of this freedom. It's going to be challenged because it's possible to hear about freedom. It's possible to sing about it. We can do all the right things and not actually experience it. And it's possible to experience it for a season of life and to walk in the simplicity of it and then all for a sudden come to a place where we are not walking in it, just like the Galatians. 
That's why he says, you were running well. You were running well. You started off so good. Now, who pushed you off the course? And so we must stand firm in this freedom or else something else happens. This freedom can turn into bondage. This freedom, this lightness, this ease can turn into a yoke of slavery. And this is what he says. If you don't stand firm, you will submit again to a yoke of slavery. And this is what a yoke of slavery is. The law. The heaviness of trying to walk out those 613 commands. To, never mind doing them. Try to memorize them. Try to know all of them. That alone is a burden. But to come to a place to try to walk it out daily in perfection is a yoke of slavery. What a contrast to what Jesus said in that famous scripture. Do we not know it? What does he say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That makes sense in light of what he's saying here. Those who are heavy, yes, by sin, yes, by the burden of our own transgressions, but also from the burden of trying to think that I got to get right with God by my own efforts. That heaviness, that weightiness, if you have that, come to me. Come to me. And when you come to me, something's going to happen. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So, you know, we all have a choice here. We have a yoke of slavery, which is the law, or we can take Jesus' yoke. Now, we know what a yoke is, do we not? No, it's a, it's a wooden instrument usually that binds two animals together to pull a weight by sharing their strength so that that load is not given to one specific beast on his own strength. So, you know what Jesus is saying by saying, take my yoke upon you? He's saying, join with me, be associated with me, link with me. And as you do, you will realize that this yoke is actually light. And it's easy. Why is it light? Why is it easy? Because he did all the work. He did all the heavy lifting. He did everything that was necessary to please God. Or we can take the yoke of slavery and try to do it ourselves. In the end, it will never satisfy God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We join ourselves to him, realizing that he already accomplished it all. And that's why there is that sense of liberty and ease and lightness. Never, and never mind just salvation. This verse is good for every principle of life. Whatever you endeavor to do, brother and sister, whatever you want to do in this life, no matter what you link yourself to, make sure that you yoke yourself to Christ at the same time. Because whatever task, whatever relationship, whatever ministry you want to be a part of, would you invite him a part of it? And when you do, guess what happens to that thing, to that person, to that circumstance? It becomes light. It becomes easy. Because you've linked yourself to the Son of God. So this isn't just for salvation. This is for sanctification. Walk with him. Link yourself with him. Remain in that freedom. Stand firm. Because it's going to be challenged at one point or another. It's going to be challenged like it did for these people. And from this point on, the apostle gives two heart-stopping warnings. Remember, he's making a final plea. He's, he's now getting personal. Again, remember, whenever he gets personal, he, he's having a heart-to-heart -heart moment with his people. He's not just speaking from the law and from the Old Testament. No, he's saying, look, I, Paul, now, now I'm talking to you as a brother. Now I'm talking to you as a spiritual father. You need to hear how serious this is. Reading this, can I be honest? I was a little convicted by the intensity that this man had for the gospel. By the seriousness that he knew that if anybody had a skewed understanding of it, they put themselves in great danger. So what does he do? He gives two warnings to do two groups of people. The first warning is for the first group, those who are ready to embrace this false teaching. 
Those who are ready to reject the gospel of grace and receive a perverted version of it. He's about to warn them. And then he's about to warn those who are teaching this false teaching. Again, he wants to move on to practicality, but he has to give this final call to make sure that they realize that if they choose to disobey what he has been given by the Spirit, they will walk into these two unfortunate, terrifying realities. So what does he say in verse 3 of chapter 5? I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You want to keep circumcision? This is what they were boasting in. Come on, show something from your flesh that you are a true son of Abraham. Show something of yourself that you are truly saved and you're in your right relationship with God. Get circumcised. That was their whole argument. And this is what Paul says before and he says it again. You want to get circumcised? You want to show off? You want, you want to prove yourself that you have to contribute to your salvation? If you're going to keep circumcision, you're going to keep the whole law. You can't pick and choose what law you want to oblige by. You have to take it all or take none of it in terms of relating to God rightly. So, you want to get circumcised? That's the first step into a new life of observing all the hundreds of commands that you must submit to. I'm sure they were reconsidering it at that point. I'm sure they realized at this moment, whoever read this letter out loud to the Galatian churches were like, okay, hold up. I didn't know it was about the whole lot. I thought it was just circumcision. He says, you still want to get circumcised? What does he say? Verse 4, you're severed from Christ. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Trembling? It should make us. He says, listen, again, if you want to go down this road, you literally cut off any relationship with Jesus Christ. Even if you have some of it in your theology, if you do not embrace totally Christ, you have nothing. You have nothing to do with him. He has nothing to do with you. Any blessing that he bestows, any grace that extends from his hand is not yours anymore. Now, oftentimes, we've probably heard this idea or this phrase, falling away from grace, as a teaching to say that you and I can come to the place where we sin a certain amount or we sin to such a degree in which we forfeit the grace of God by perverting his grace. Have you heard that? Have you heard that phrase? It's common. But it's dishonest with the context. The idea of falling away from grace or being severed from Christ in our relationship with Him because we've sinned a certain amount is not true according to the context. The context isn't you sin so much so that now you have trampled on the blood of Christ and therefore you don't have relationship with Christ because you've butchered the understanding of grace. That's not the context. It's this. You're trying to keep the whole law. You're trying to be legalistic. You're trying to win God's favor. And from doing so, that's how you're severing yourself from grace. It's, a complete, it's the opposite. You're trying to get in right standing with God by your own efforts. That is how you actually sever yourself from Christ. When you reject the idea of Jesus Christ saving you completely by his own work, you've fallen away from grace. Grace has no value to you. It's not a gift to you anymore. You're mingling it, and therefore you are severed from it. So they had to make a choice because remember, what they were hearing was, Jesus died on the cross, but that wasn't enough. Here's some law that you need. And he goes, "Mm -mm mm-mm-mm. Either Jesus Christ or law. Pick. If you want law, know Jesus Christ. Listen, guys, there are billions of people. We said this last week. There are billions, millions of people, rather, 
that have made that decision with their relationship with God. That they want Christ, they understand the gospel to some degree. But as we learned last week, like Abraham, remember, Hagar and Sarah. And like Abraham with Hagar, understanding the blessing that would come from a promise, but attempting to make it happen as well by his own strength and his own flesh. Many people understand the promise of salvation, have somewhat of an understanding, but they're trying to mingle it with their own efforts as well to try to produce the blessing on their own. It's a dangerous place to be. But then he has now a warning in verse 10. Before he says, you can't have both, your hand can only be placed in one or the other, your heart can only be signed by one redeemer or another, you can only connect your faith to one savior or another. And now he says something else in verse 10. The second audience, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, verse 10. This is not a light matter. We all know the consequences of the person who in his own heart chooses to reject in unbelief who Jesus is and what he has truly done. We know the eternal consequences that come from when a person chooses to do that himself, that hears the good news, that reads the good news, that is being evangelized to only say no thanks. That no thanks seals somebody's eternity unless they change their mind before they give their final breath. We know that. We know the heaviness of that. Now, if the heaviness of that, of choosing to reject Christ from my own heart as an individual by my free will is so severe, how much more severe is the one who not only has that in his own heart but leads other hearts to that? Think of that. Think of that. And that's exactly what he's saying to these false teachers. You want to preach a different false gospel? Preach it to your own heart if that's your will. But if you're going to lead others into that falsehood, you have a penalty that you're going to bear. And it's a serious one. And so he, he really wants them to hear what he has to say. Because these false teachers were in the midst of the church. And it's traditionally understood that these letters would be read just like how it's being read right now. So imagine at that point, hey, false teachers, you're going to bear a penalty. Because yes, I, Paul, am talking to you as an apostle who's been given authority to speak this way. But what does he say? Ultimately, judgment is God's. You're not going to deal with me. You're not going to deal with Peter and John. In the end, you will be stand before the white, hot, blazing throne of God. And you will have to give an account for the message that you preach to deceive the masses. So both of these crowds now had to make a choice. They had to make a decision. And Paul again says something in this urgent moment. You Galatians are standing at a crossroads. You're standing at a place where there are two paths. Now you have a choice to make. One path is called circumcision. And it's, don't get caught up with just circumcision. It's, it symbolizes works-based salvation. And the other path is the cross. Circumcision, the cross. Circumcision, the cross. This is where you're standing right now. You have to make a choice of which way you're going to go. I, Paul, am on this road and I'm calling to you. And on this road you have a bunch of false teachers that are saying the opposite. So what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? And it's quite possible that these Judaizers were telling them that even Paul preached circumcision. They were trying to use Paul as a means as well by falsely testifying on his behalf that he himself preached circumcision. They probably use his past as a Pharisee by abiding by the law. To say, you realize that Paul's, who knows what they were saying. And Paul says, listen, listen, listen. If I preach circumcision, then why am I being persecuted? If I'm the one who agrees with these guys, as perhaps they're saying, 
then why am I being persecuted? Why am I suffering for my message? I'll tell you why I'm suffering for my message. Because I preach the cross. And the cross, hear this, is an offense. It's an offense. Have you ever wondered why the cross is offensive? We all love the cross. We embrace the cross. But do we realize that to many, it's actually repulsive? It's actually rejected by many. And we wonder why. Here are three reasons. Why is the cross offensive? Number one, because it declares the depth of our depravity. It declares the depth of our depravity. The cross draws attention to the severity of our sin. And it gives no room for anybody to downplay its nature. When you and I look at that cross, we realize something of our human fallenness. To take sin lightly, to treat acts of transgression flippantly, is to testify that we fail to realize how ugly our sin really is. Because when we look at the cross, what we see is the cost of our sin. And no matter how much we might be familiar with our sin patterns, our thoughts, our heart motives, our actions in, in secret or in public, no matter how much society tries to normalize what is so hideous to the eyes of a holy God, the cross will forever stand as a monument to declare the vileness and the hideousness of our sin. Our sin brought the sinless Son of God to a certain point. That is to be a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice. For it to be ultimately satisfied by the justice of God. It is no light matter. And when man stares at the cross, if it is preached faithfully, if it is read honestly, it will shine back the reality of the darkness of our souls. Surely this is offensive to the man who does not think that even the smallest sin should be considered to be that bad. But the cross testifies something else. That even your thoughts have brought the Son of God to this point. Even your heart motives have brought the Son of God to this point. To suffer beyond human comprehension. So we don't just see a man hanging on a cross, humiliated. We see our sin that put him there. And to the flesh, that's offensive. Number one, it declares the depth of our depravity. Number two, it completely eliminates any possibility for self-glory. It completely eliminates any possibility for self-glory. Listen, not only does it declare our sin, it also declares the remedy for it. And so when we look at the cross, what we see is the exclusive power that it contains. And surely this is what Paul specifically had in mind when he wrote this. This is why it's an offense. That when you and I look at the cross, it not only proclaims the depth of our depravity, it also proclaims something that Jesus actually proclaimed from his lips while hanging on that cross. It is finished. It's finished. 
not to be continued, not to be added upon, not partly accomplished, not more to be done. He said on that cross, it is finished. And from that place, we realize that his perfect life and his perfect death created the only means by which we can have relationship with a perfect God. And this is what happens. It stands alone. The cross now stands alone as the only way for us to enter into relationship with God. Man's participation, man's merit dies. And so when we come to the cross, not only are our sins washed by the blood, but any attempt for self-glory is drowned by the crimson flow of Jesus Christ. And this is an offense. This is an offense specifically to the religious man. Listen, it is not as offensive to say, here's a perfect holy God, and here's some things that you need to do to get right with God. What's more offensive is, here's a perfect and holy God, you can't do anything. And so here's a perfect man, receive him by faith. We are a performance-based society. From the beginning, we've sown fig leaves to cover our shame. And so when we come to the cross, and we realize that it declares it is finished, where's the boasting? Where's the expectation for man to praise me based on my piety? Where's the reward? Where's the crowning? For my sweat, my blood, my tears being shed to get to this place, the thresholds of eternal life. None. And this offends the man who longs to work and to produce their own Ishmael when God simply said, believe the promise for Isaac. Lastly, not only does it declare the depravity of our sin, not only does it completely annihilate any attempt to self-glory, lastly, it demands for man to make a choice. The cross demands for the onlooker to make a choice. And so as he hears about the cross, as he looks at the cross, as he studies the cross, he has to understand that he has to do something with that cross. There is no neutral position that you can have as you stand on the hill of Calvary. There is no middle opinion. When you and I look at the cross, and if the preacher is faithful to declare it, he will bring the individual, the hearer, to the place, the valley of decision. And in that place, this is what the decision simply is. Will I reject the blood that stained that tree, or will I apply it? No middle ground. And so, to many, to many, the cross, the cross, his cross, is nothing more than a historical event. To many, the cross is nothing more than a fashionable ornament. You'd be amazed. I challenge you, if you want an evangelistic tool to enter into conversation with a stranger, if they're wearing a cross, ask them. That's a nice cross. Are you a Christian? Well, that's a nice cross. What does it mean to you? You'll be shocked to hear the answers that will come from people that carry that symbol. And they'll be as honest as say, it just looks good with my outfit. So you can wear it, you can mount it, you can study it, but it demands a choice. 
And there's an urgency to make a decision. To hold off on that decision is probably a very unwise thing to do. And the cross declares that. For today is the day of salvation. And so as a person stares at that wooden beam, many are offended by the message that it carries. It disturbs the conscience. It interrupts one's order of life. It changes and and brings you to a place where it will shift the perception of life altogether if embraced. It alarms to make an urgent decision. And this, of course, is an offense. Is an offense. Because again, you will either run to that cross and throw your arms around the foot of it. Oh, you would turn your back from it. Only two choices. And people don't want to be pushed into a corner to make a choice. But the faithful preacher with a heart throbbing with love will declare that decision that needs to be made. This is what Paul's saying now at this point. I've made my point clear. Up to this point in this letter, I have made my point clear. I've proved that my apostleship is from divine, a divine commissioning from Jesus Christ himself. I've proved the fruit of my ministry and also the approval that I've received from the other apostles to say that it is surely a divine commissioning by Christ himself. I've proven to you from the law, from the Old Testament, that salvation is by faith alone. I've come to the place where I've explained to you that the true descendants of Abraham are by faith and not by circumcision. And I have warned you of the dangers by either embracing or rejecting this gospel. So now let's get down to this point that I want to get to, and that is your freedom in Christ. I want to talk to you, Paul says, about what it truly means to be free in Christ and how to walk about in that freedom. I want you to experience the fullness of that freedom. So I made all those points clear. Now here we're about to transition as a group. Here we're about to transition in this letter. What true spirituality is and how to walk in the true power to be consistent in it. It's an exciting part of the text. So he says in verse 13, look down in your Bibles, would you please? For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Oh, it's amazing what happens if you don't have love in a church. People will turn into cannibals. And you'll eat each other, so to speak, to the point where there's little life in existence. Different message for a different time. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Listen, that's what Paul's been saying this whole time. Freedom, 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 freedom. Don't go to slavery, don't go to slavery, don't go to slavery. And Paul, because he's inspired by the Spirit, and he's a very, very smart guy, realizes that if he keeps talking this freedom talk, that these false teachers are going to be like, so you can like do whatever you want, right? So this freedom idea is that you can just live how you want. Paul says, you've been called to freedom, brothers. Know that. But don't use your freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Because it's possible to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. 
And maybe not in a lifestyle, maybe in a decision where we are greatly tempted and here's an opportunity for the flesh. God is merciful and he'll forgive me, so I'm going to bite. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This idea of Christian freedom, I want to ask a simple question. When you hear Christian freedom, do you hear, I am free from the law, so now I can sin? Or do you hear, I am free from sin, so now I can obey the law? How you understand Christian freedom will determine how you walk this walk. Let me say that one more time. When you hear Christian freedom, do you hear, I'm free from the law, so now I can live in worldliness and compromise? Or do you hear, I've been free from sin, so now I can obey the law? Big difference. Because what has Paul been warning about up to this point? What's his main argument? This is his main argument. Listen, as you stand firm and as you fight off and resist the temptation to go back into legalism, that is a true fight that you will have to fight. But realize this, that as you stand firm in this freedom and as you ward it off and as you shoo it off and as you shield yourself by the truth of this word, realize that in that standing of freedom, there's another danger. And here's the other danger, that as you stand in this freedom and you shoo off those other things that will pull you out of it, you can in this place misuse that freedom. So I got another fight to fight. I'm not just trying to push away legalism. Remember that message with the road, the narrow road? We got two ditches. Two ditches. We got lawlessness and we got legalism. Lawlessness, legalism. And we can spend so much time trying not to be legalistic that we trip into lawlessness. We got to be careful. And this is what Paul is saying, that beautiful balance. And so he uses this opportunity now to make himself... As a proclaimer of this gospel of grace, there is a danger as well in this grace to manipulate it and to use that as an opportunity for my flesh. So we ask ourselves that question. Christ set us free so that we can walk in freedom. Yes, freedom from the law being the means of being right with God. But you know that this freedom that Christ gives us, it's a package filled with other things that we are free from. That when I receive this grace from Jesus Christ, this grace not only sets me free from the law, this grace enables me to walk out the standard that Christ has set. Think about that. That this freedom sets me free. Pay very close attention. This freedom sets me free from the inability to walk in obedience. That's awesome. So then there's this infusion that comes. This infusion of grace that does not positionally just set me right with God. Praise be to God. But this infusion of grace also animates my soul to the place where I am empowered to live out like Jesus on this side of heaven. We don't preach that gospel anymore. We don't preach that kind of a freedom anymore. We've convinced people that if they're bound because they're positionally free, they can stay bound. That's not the gospel. The gospel's freedom goes deeper than that. It gets into our behavior. It gets into my bloodstream. And this is what he says. By receiving the grace of Christ, I've also received the grace to walk in victory over sin and to walk in obedience. Paul advocated salvation by faith. Let's not get it twisted. But faith that does not produce something in our lives, in fact, is not true faith. It must result in fruit. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. Look what he says. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith. He didn't stop there, though. He didn't say, but only faith, period. He says, but only faith working through love. If faith does not work out love in our lives, deeds of love, adoration towards the Savior and towards his people and towards the dying world, then that faith is not true faith. Faith working through love. Faith proven through love. Faith manifested in love. That's the faith that Paul is advocating for. And so it must show itself and show itself through this. So we might be thinking up to this point, if I'm not to be legalistic, and if I'm not to be lawless, then what does my Christian life look like? I need a label for my Christian walk. I need a standard. I need some kind of framework because I understand legalism and I know a lot of people that are living legalistically and I know lawlessness. God help us in our generation. That seems to be the one that's prevalent. But where am I supposed to stand? And what does my Christian existence look like if I'm truly saved by this faith? And he says it right here in verse 13. But through love, serve one another. But through love, serve one another. So Paul rejects going back to the slavery of the law. Paul rejects being subject to sin. But Paul does promote one type of slavery. You ready for it? To be a slave to one another. To be servants of one another. To be humbly walking with each other. This is what he's saying. And we know what this looks like as we get to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we'll wait for them. But this is the principle that we need to be set in our minds. That Paul does say something beautiful here. I promote a type of slavery. It's not to the law. It's not to sin. It's to service that's brimming with love. That's how we walk this walk. What that looks like is for another time. But let us solidify as we close in a moment through another text, how this grace, it's a well-known text, how this grace doesn't just positionally set us right. It empowers us to live right. Ready? Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Titus 2.11. This is what the same apostle says to his pastor friend Titus. And he says, for the grace of God. That's what Galatians is all about. That's what we're preaching. That's what we're promoting. That's what we're studying. For the grace of God has appeared. When did it appear? When Jesus appeared. Has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Yes. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But he doesn't stop there. He says in the next verse that this grace not only declares it is finished, not only declares that it is enough. It says here in the ESV, training. It depends on your translation. It might also say teaching, if you have the King James. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, a negative thing, and to positively say yes to, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this, the next age? In this present age. So when I look at the cross, we've been looking how it's an offense to the unregenerate man, yes. But to the regenerate man, I don't just look to the cross, say yes to the cross, then turn my back on the cross and say, I'll see you in heaven. I continue to stare at the cross. 
And as I continue to stare at the cross, it tells me something. I look at it and it declares it is finished. Praise be to God. I'm secure in his hand. But it also says, say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. Yes, Lord. And also say, 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 say yes to self-control, uprightness, godliness. Can I ask you a humble question? When you and I look at the cross, do we hear that? Or do we just cut it off that it is finished? It teaches us something. That wooden cross 2,000 years ago says something to you and I today. Say no to ungodliness, anything that doesn't honor God, anything that does not promote holiness, anything that does not please him or reflect his nature or reflect his character, anything that is contrary to who he is, say no to it. Why? Because it costs him something. Worldly pleasures, the things that the world pursues in terms of possessions and sensual selfish desires that are steering people away from God by the masses. When you stare at the cross, it says, say no. Because through this cross, I offer you something better. I offer you something more satisfying and more soul-filling than what this world can offer you. Say no to it. Maybe this is why so many Christians are not so satisfied in their walk with God because they've turned around when he said it is finished, when he says, oh, I have more to say to you. And also says, say yes. Say yes to self-control. Say yes to self-control because my blood has created the ability and the cleansing power for your heart to be an abiding place by the Holy Spirit. So that now you can live self-control. You say, I can't be self-controlled. Well, don't worry. It says it's the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is the last fruit of the Spirit. So now, because of this purchase, I have now the power to live self-controlled. So I can say yes to it. Not just self-control. Live upright with integrity and humility and honesty. Reflect the person of Jesus Christ in the practical ways. Because he did not just die a perfect death, he lived a perfect life. Godly. Include him. Invite him. Worship him. Reflect him. Imitate him. That's what the cross is declaring. This is what this is declaring to us daily. And so this cross, it says... Training us to renounce. That is language to say daily renouncing and daily embracing these realities. So Paul has made his final urging plea concerning this gospel of grace. Before now he transitions into the practical understanding of walking in the spirit. I hope that you are as excited as I am to know the secrets, so to speak. It's not really secret, it's in there. To walking in a victorious life in the spirit. To know that I don't need to do fleshy things like these Judaizers were promoting to try to look holy and pious. No, I have been given a power from on high to do it. And to do it with joy. And to do it in a way that it will infect and be contagious for other people. Listen, we have a choice to walk in the spirit. And that is the the message that we have next time we're together. And if we choose to walk in it, we're in for a life that we never thought that we could live. Take my yoke upon you. 
Some new faces here. Glad you're here. I want to ask you a simple question. Do you have freedom? Are you free from the mindset that says, I need to get right with God by my own merit? And are you free from the power of sin in your life? Do you have that burden on your soul? It can be lifted off today. And there can be a lightness that is available to you that can only be explained as heavenly. But you have to receive it by faith. Jesus said, come to me. Come to me. And I encourage you today that as we worship the same Jesus that we just heard about, because he's alive, that you would hear that invitation from his heart to yours to say, come to me. And let me lift that off of you. How do you come to that place where that yoke is shattered and that you receive salvation? It's when you realize your need. And you realize, Christ, you're the only advantage that I have. Anything else has no advantage to me, even my own works. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. It's yours today. And for the brothers and sisters here that have that, continue to come to him. And to yoke yourself to him. And let him make your life a light and easy thing because you are doing it with him. This is what we need today. Let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts as we enter into what it means to walk in the spirit next week. But let's not just ask for that. Let's also rejoice in thanksgiving. That as we go back to the first question of this message, are you happy you're saved? I say yes with you. Would you stand with me, please? as we worship the Lord, and meditate on this verse before we sing. Galatians 5.5 5 says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You know, in the midst of all our busyness, guys, in the midst of all our planning, in the midst of all our stresses and all the things that demand our focus and our attention, this verse tells us something, that by the Spirit, by faith, there is this waiting there's this underlining posture of the heart that is waiting that any moment I can be taken up from here. We must walk with that continually. Not as a means to be lazy or to be hermits. That's not the idea. But it, it provides an anchor to the soul. All of this is going to be done away with. I'm going to be taken. And when, I'm, when I go, this faith in my heart will be given as a transaction for a robe of righteousness. And I'm going to enter into His presence forever. Enter into His presence forever. So we say thank you to the Lord for that. But this is by the Spirit. So if you don't have that anchor in your heart, this is the time to say, Lord, make it a real thing in my life. That I would sense that waiting, that I would sense that rest, that I would sense that anticipation and excitement for the redemption of my soul ultimately in Christ Jesus.